OTBGAA. And all of a sudden, you know, Kerry are totally up. They never, ever got a chance to build again after they got a score. And that was down to Cluxon and the movement outside. Subscribe to the OTBGAA podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Now then, you're welcome, Max. So confirmation of what we expected. Katie Taylor and Chantelle Cameron 2 is happening. The date has been confirmed today, November the 25th. It will be at Dublin's 3 Arena. Cameron's undisputed super lightweight titles will be on the line. Gavin Casey of the 42 is with us. Good evening. Hey, Joe. Hey, Very well. So uh, I guess we all knew it was very unlikely, uh, even if she'd won, I suspect. There was no way in hell Katie Taylor was signing off with a defeat in Dublin. So here we go again in November 25th, three arena, full steam ahead. Yeah, that's kind of it. And uh, today's news wasn't a surprise to anybody, I suppose, who watched that first fight or who has even vaguely followed Katie Taylor's career. She's probably made that career by taking the greatest challenges possible to her ever since she was a child and she continues to do it at 37. Look, we'll probably finish this conversation with you asking me how I think the fight is going to go. I can only skip to that part and give you the same answer as I gave you the first time they fought and and I think Cameron is a favourite again. Mm. The only thing that really is different this time around is that, well actually it's it's almost an identical fight, right? It's in Dublin again which we can get into. It's Cameron uh, defending her titles at 140 pounds. It's Katie Taylor coming up in weight again, 240 pounds. And the only thing that has changed or the only difference in general is time, the passing of time since they fought in May. And time is not on Katie Taylor's side. That's just the nature of where she is in her career at this point. And Cameron remains uh, the fresher fighter. You could actually make the argument, I would say, that their last fight would have been even more physically taxing on Taylor than it was on Cameron, just given the way it played out. So... The odds are um, figuratively and actually literally more stacked against Taylor this time around. Yes, and even Cameron was talking about the rematch and I know fighters tend to talk a very confident game. That's part of uh, the fight and the warfare which starts as soon as the fight is scheduled. But I think there's a certain sincerity to what she was saying. So it was along the lines of going into this rematch I'm more prepared this time I know what it feels like now I'm going to go in there with more aggression energy and I'm confident of getting the job done in better fashion I'm going to be a lot better in the rematch in the gym we're correcting some of the mistakes I made I think I'm all wrong for Katie again no fighter has gone in there saying you know a lot of reasons I'll lose this fight and uh, you know (laughs) it's not how things are done but I sense a certain uh, sincerity there particularly that line of I know what it feels like now so I presume she's talking about any array of things, the atmosphere, the home crowd very much behind Taylor. And then also just Cameron would have been a touch unsure as to what to expect from somebody of Taylor's calibre. So it's, I know what it feels like now and I feel pretty good about that. I think you've nailed it. I think that is the key point. The rest of it is, is almost white noise to me. The rest of it is the kind of thing that every boxer does says before a fight. Yeah, does say before a fight. And um uh, to a degree you can take it at face value but often it is just filling space where words belong and press releases and things like that which is where those quotes come from today but yeah. i think that the key um part of what cameron says is that she has been there already now and the big question mark over cameron ahead of that original fight wasn't to do with her ability you and i had plenty of conversations about the fight a couple of months in advance a couple of days in advance her ability was never in question the only way i thought that taylor might have the edge over her was psychologically because taylor has been ostensibly fighting in in finals let's say since she was in her 20s whereas Cameron didn't have the same amateur pedigree she had never fought in the white heat of a night that she was like the one she was about to experience in Dublin at that time 
she came through that test with absolutely flying colors and i think that will have done her wonders for the rest of her career not only this rematch she knows she can storm into the lion's den now she is pretty much the lion right like she's going to be the first name on the poster this time around she's sort of the the leader of the dance if you like and taylor is the underdog and with good reason with good reason based on what we saw in that first fight and she proved that to herself that was probably the missing link if you like or, or the one missing ingredient uh, that would make Chantal cameron a great fighter was that mental side of things i'd heard from plenty of people who had seen her at closer quarters than i have even as an international back in the day who said she crumbled under pressure and that she wasn't able to deal with it well she proved all of those people wrong and she proved herself correct in may and that's a really key aspect to the build-up of this fight is there are really no unknowns this time around and from what we do know cameron is justifiably the favorite you mentioned there katie but once again go up to 140 pounds to what extent did that step up in um Ways going up to meet Cameron detract from her power in the ring? I don't know if it necessarily detracted from Taylor specifically, but what it does, like, it's almost like you flip that and you're fighting against somebody who is conditioned to take heavier shots than you're throwing at them. Yes. Because they're, yeah, so they're accustomed to, um, like they're accustomed to bigger women cameron is accustomed to bigger women actually firing shots at you like taylor could have been equally powerful um and i don't know that like carrying around the extra weight actually inhibited her oh she she could she could uh, yeah no i i I totally my thinking was along the lines you've explained taylor taylor may well have even been more powerful than she usually is at her usual fighting weight but it's detracted uh, from her power in the sense that she's fighting against somebody who's more used to taking punches from more powerful women presumably so when taylor throws what she thinks was a pretty good shot it's not having the effect that it would usually have. That's it. It's in relative terms, isn't it? And I, I do think that, as we discussed last time we spoke about these two fighters, the only way that Taylor could ever have won that fight is if she had the mobility to get on her bike and pedal around like mad and mm. really try to move, use every inch of the ring to her advantage and use some of her brilliant boxing skills that we've seen for 20-odd years. But her legs didn't seem to really be there they're just not quite as nimble as they used to be they certainly stiffen up early in fights now it's it's a little bit harder for her to move around at 37 than it was at 27 and it's hard to imagine that changing in the intervening six months right like again taylor is only getting a little bit older (laughs) outside of the ring it's not the end of the world 37 is plenty young but in boxing terms really throughout history it's quite old um and only true anomalies go beyond that and like if you look at the size difference again it's it's very difficult to make the case that taylor can mitigate against that or find mm-hmm. uh, tactical tweaks that will be sufficient in overcoming that because again i don't think her mobility is quite there and any game plan to be cameron i think uh, will be predicated upon mobility this time around it's just a mobility that i don't believe she has anymore yeah I know, I seem to remember us talking about issues with her calves in the build-up to the last fight, for instance. That's it. And the thing is, she is... Uh, look, we've seen it a thousand times from Katie Taylor. She absolutely adores the idea of a tear-up. And at times, she'll get involved uh, in the pocket, hang around there and, and just start lashing shots into somebody for almost for her own entertainment. I think part of what has made her a brilliant fighter to watch as a professional, and even as an amateur as well, is the idea that she likes to convince her opponent that not only can I outbox you, but I can actually outfight you as well. But the reality is you can only outfight maybe 90% of 
fighters and there comes a point in your career where somebody's actually going to be able to fight you and i think that's what cameron is able to do she proved that last last time around a couple of others have gotten close right delphine pursuing amanda serrano and i just don't know that taylor a natural lightweight 135 pound fighter mm. can move up it's not a massive jump but it's just significant again in the sense that you're fighting a far naturally larger woman and outgun them like you just can't outgun cameron at least taylor can't just physically physiologically I don't see it being possible. So what is the alternative? You have to move. And Taylor just doesn't move quite as well as she used to. It's just a, a, a reality of being her age. It's a reality of boxing at the elite level, almost as a professional for a quarter of a century at this point. Yeah. And um, it's unavoidable, the sense of, of dread that I feel towards the point, really, as, as just an Irish <laughs> sports fan, because yeah. it does feel as though the end is night. Yeah, you're not painting the most optimistic picture, I have to say. I'm not, I'm not seeing a fairly open avenue here towards a Taylor win based on what you're saying. So if we accept for a second that at 140 uh, stand in the middle of the ring and get into a tear up and just throw punches is unlikely to work for Taylor and you say she's not moving as well as she used to for obvious reasons to outbox Cameron. I suppose maybe the most optimistic question I can ask is fair enough if Taylor isn't moving as well as she used to the hope would be she can get into a position where she just needs to move well enough to outbox Cameron akin to Dublin 2023 are not Dublin of 2016-17 but 2023 was good enough to get it done against this particular vintage so that might be the hope for Taylor that she comes out and she moves not as well as she did 10 years ago but well enough Hey, listen, Joe, like, look at the dubs. And when you start talking about the last dance, which is what this feels like, it sometimes can stir something in an athlete, right? You get a bit of a swan song and it's not inconceivable that Taylor wins the fight. I know I've sort of painted a, a stark picture and that's yeah. me just trying to be pragmatic. But we are talking about a generationally great boxer and somebody who will have the advantage of being able to study the last fight and will work with her trainer on... Um, on the sorts of tweaks that I can't even conceive of at mm. the moment. Like, let's be honest, like Rossi Inouye is a trainer, I'm not. Mm. I'm just sort of speaking from somebody who had the, a pretty good vantage point from outside of the ring last time around, but they would be working on game plans. And she has proved in the past in, in say her rematch with Delphine Pursun, the first time she fought Pursun, a lot of people felt that Pursun won that fight. I would personally thought the second time around, it was a comprehensive win for Taylor and she made the requisite adjustments to make that a, a convincing and clear victory so it's not inconceivable at all there's also the flip side of this which is that cameron as much as a good fight last time cameron didn't have the toughest night of her life really like it was close it was a majority decision but she was a clear and convincing winner and she probably felt taylor's power or, or relative lack thereof at 140 pounds and thought you know she's not it like she's not the fighter that everybody had bigged her up to be so she's probably coming in very, like, as you um, alluded to when you read her quotes at the start, like, exceedingly confident yeah. of victory. Could she go over the top a little bit, you know? Um, I'm, I'm clutching at straws there, but it, it, we've seen it a thousand times where a fighter just thinks, well, I just have to show up and, and I'll beat this yeah. uh, opposition. So there are loads of factors that can still change this. And uh, exactly as you say, it's not as though she has to, Katie Taylor has to sprint around the ring for 10 rounds in order to win it. You just have to get out of Dodge a little bit more than she did the first time around. But I, I think one of the issues the first time around as well was she started extremely flatly. 
it was a slow start. You and I had said you really have to bank the first two or three rounds, plant seeds of doubt in Cameron's head, use the only advantage that you truly have, which is the psychological advantage that we mentioned earlier, mm. uh, and have her chase the fight. Taylor couldn't manage to do that for whatever reason. But I wonder, is that uh, an issue that she and Rossina might can actually address this, this time around? Why were we so flat at the start? Why did it not quite pay off like whatever game plan they had uh, manufactured together? Why did that not? Why did she not execute it properly? Or were, why was she unable to? And if you can bank the first two, three pounds in a women's fight, there are seven more to go. They're only two minutes long. Yeah. It's a huge deficit. So it's not mission impossible. It's just mission unlikely. Yes. No, fair points. And when you say that you made the point there that Cameron sort of feels, well, I've, I've been in there and she's not it. When she talks about being more aggressive in November, Cameron, that is, you suspect that is a consequence of having taken some shots from Taylor and realised, oh, I can take these. I can afford to actually be pretty aggressive here. Yeah, and the thing is, I can't remember the exact round, but Taylor did hurt Cameron a couple of times. So it's easy to think in retrospect, well, I, I felt everything she threw at me. It didn't really budge me. And in a sort of a general sense, it didn't, but actually in fleeting moments, it did. Yeah. So you can sort of convince yourself the second time around is going to be easier than it actually was even the first time. And it's not like that Chantel Cameron is an arrogant fighter who's going to show up and um, like underprepared or anything along those lines. It's just that those little 1% we're talking about where maybe subconsciously you think, yeah, I'm bound to win this again because I won it handily last time. When in actual fact, like there were plenty of moments where we saw glimpses of Taylor's class and Taylor is not a power puncher, but a little bit like somebody say like Floyd Mayweather in the past, she hurts hard enough to make you second guess herself every now and then. So um I would say yes, like Cameron's confidence is uh, predicated upon uh, that, like having having experienced Taylor in the ring, but Taylor only needs to make a couple of adjustments and she's a little bit better and who knows, like these are very short fights, women's fights. Yeah. They can hinge on a round or two, just as the Serrano fight did, where if you build a little bit of a head of steam, it's, sometimes it can be hard to arrest that. Uh, for the opponent and I actually think that's what happened to Taylor in that first fight mm. it was Cameron who built up the head of steam early and Taylor wasn't quite able to turn it around despite actually finishing pretty well yeah um, I'm not sure when tickets go on sale I presume just like last time they'll go double quick they'll be super expensive and it'll be an amazing occasion and if anything the crowd will be uh, more vociferous I think understanding just how much of an uphill task this is and how important the first couple of rounds are so that's kind of the deal for November once again and there's a Leinster match on I think again that day it's like uh, you know history doesn't um, repeat itself but it's certainly rhyming <laughs> yeah I, I, look I hope they're not as expensive as they were the first time around but I guess like it is worth pointing out the reason why this is coming back to Dublin in the first place is because Matroom and Eddie Hearn know that if they are that expensive again, Irish people will pay yeah. that price. Uh, and they know they're going to fill the three arena regardless. So that's not Katie Taylor trying to make, you know, squeeze an extra buck out of Irish fans. This is a promotional choice. And they made, I think, over two million euro at the gate last time around. So the reason why Cameron, who literally just beat Taylor, isn't at home this time around, why she doesn't have home advantage is because if you put her out in Northampton, is she going to sell like three and a half, four thousand tickets? Being generous, maybe. But she doesn't quite have the name of the profile in England yet where she would be a sell, whereas Taylor is a guaranteed sell. Matrim are coming here knowing the success of the last event. Yeah. So 
it's not that uh, it's not even necessarily that Taylor pushed for Dublin and it's not that Cameron has necessarily been hard done by it's that all the parties involved in this are going to make a lot more money for the fact that it is in Dublin and um, I feel for Cameron a little bit in the sense that she deserves to uh, call more shots this time around she wanted to fight down at lightweight she wanted to challenge Taylor for her 135 pound belts this time around but even though she is the first name in the equation and the first uh, name on the poster this time around, Taylor's still a significant sway. She uh, demanded that it be back at 140 so she can set the record straight. Yeah. Hey, listen, if you want to uh, charge expensive prices, you know what city to come to. It's uh, That uh, <laughs> rings true across the board, unfortunately. So look, we're, we're kind of dancing around this. They very. It's very simple. You didn't think she was going to win back in May and she didn't. And there's very little which has changed now to suggest that she's likely to do it. So we go and hope more than expectation. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about it in more depth as November approaches. Just before you go, Gab, I wanted to ask you about Terence Crawford, if I could. So 35 years of age, uh, a pretty stunning record of 40, 0 and 0. And he won against Errol Spence Jr. at the weekend in Vegas. So he took all of Spence's welterweight belts. And that means that Crawford has become an undisputed champion in a second weight division. He was previously undisputed uh, light welterweight champion in uh, 2017. Am I right in saying this is the first time this has happened in male professional boxing, this achievement? Uh, in the four belt era, as yeah. it's known, which is only, say, two decades long. So since okay. the IBF and WBO joined the traditional big two of the WBC and WBA. But actually, we, we we'd, I think you and I spoke about it a little bit when we were first uh, teeing up the Taylor Cameron fight in May, because that was an undisputed versus undisputed fight as, uh, as well, yes. in that uh, Taylor had the opportunity to become a, a two-weight undisputed champion. And it really is only a... It's less than a handful of fighters in boxing's history have ever achieved that. So um, it, it was a, it was the signature win of Crawford's career in a fight that had been five or six years in the making, truly captured the attention of a global boxing public. The extent to which it was like a, a mainstream sporting story, I'm not necessarily sure. Certainly in Ireland, I felt as though some of my friends weren't aware of the weight of it or the significance of it or even aware of it taking place at all actually but you, it's easy then to conflate that with um a reality in which it, it wasn't seen as being a big fight in the states it was pretty big and i actually okay. think the reason why it might not have made such a splash in ireland is because it was on bt sport box office and just by dint of the fact that it's currently august or it was late july the build-up to the fight there's no premier league on there's no rugby on bt there's people not really watching bt sport that much during the summer i'd imagine so a lot of the ads are just falling by the wayside um but certainly in terms of the, the projections of the pay-per-view numbers and in terms of the kind of online attention i saw it receive it seemed like a, a yeah a pretty big moment for the sport and and the i wouldn't go as far as to say it was the birth of a star in terence crawford i think she, he, he was already a star but i think it might be the fight that puts him over the top mm. and puts him into a situation where we're speaking about him in similar terms as we would have previously previously spoken about Mayweather, Pacquiao, the greats of, say, the last two decades. I think he put his name into that frame, certainly. And actually, I think he is conceivably better than both of them, which is a frightening thought. Wow. But um, he's, he's, got a, he's got a little bit of road left to run and he doesn't seem beatable to my mind. It's a really, I mean, it's, it's a great answer because I was going to ask why it didn't register as much over here because I dare say 
if you stop whatever about the boxing fraternity the, the casual sports fan who is an engaged sports fan and will cotton on to whatever is kind of in the ether at that moment I think if you stop most people and said hey what about Terence Crawford I think you'd get a fairly blank look in the main considering the company you've just put him in and, and the significance of this achievement it just didn't seem to register at all boxing's that weird sport uh, you know yes. going back to Marvin Hagler he always felt for a long time he was ignored for uh, yeah, as good as he was we'll sometimes watch absolutely uh, horrific fights because they've been marketed in the right way and there's a bit of nonsense around them it's it's not like the clearest of meritocracies when it, turn, when, when it comes to grabbing the public it's true, Joe. But you know what? If you go back to 2008, 2009, say before Manny Pacquiao fought Ricky Hatton, if you walk the streets of Dublin or Cork or Limerick or yeah. London or Manchester and you ask people, do you know anything about Manny Pacquiao? The answer probably would have been the same, right? Who? Who are you talking about? But he fought Ricky Hatton and then people instantly become familiar with them. Yeah. You could argue the same even with Mayweather in this country, I would say. Before he fought Ricky Hatton, would he have been like a household sporting name? Not really. So usually it only takes one fight to put somebody over the top. I do think Crawford now is in that sort of company where uh, he's he's on the precipice of becoming globally famous. Okay. I think you would get a different answer on a lot of American streets than you would on Irish streets about Terence Crawford because he's been fighting on ESPN in prime time over there. So it's a free-to-air channel as far as I'm aware. Certainly it's in 90-odd million households in the States. Okay. He's fighting at 9, 10 p.m. over there, whereas here it's five in the morning right um but i think he's getting there i think he's getting to the point where he you know you and i might have more conversations about him in future he is that good he is that exciting mm. and also you know um in terms of his being a character he's quite understated there, there won't any I, I certainly don't foresee there ever being mayweather-esque controversy following him or anything like that he's, he's a fairly likable guy um I, I used to mistake his sort of quietness for a lack of charisma but I've learned since it, it's not that. It's just this really steely confidence and almost a, a, you know, an indifference to the pageantry of the sport. It's like he's making himself a star just because of how good he is and not because of what he says. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I find it upsetting I know more about Jake Paul than Terence Crawford. I'll be honest with you, Gav. It's the world we're living in. So look, if he's going to be a breakthrough star, he'd want to get a move on over here. He's 35. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, mind you, he didn't look much of, you know, he didn't look uh, 35, or at least he didn't look like an aging fighter in that performance against okay. Spence. What was sort of stirring about that, to my mind, was I had goosebumps watching it just because of how great it was, like a, a great sporting performance. And I wondered, I hadn't really been speaking to anybody. It was five in the morning. I'm watching it on my own. Yeah. And I'm like, am I exaggerating this in my own head? I scroll on. I went on to Twitter, a few WhatsApp groups, boxing groups and things like that. And virtually everybody had the same response. Like, this is one of the greatest performances we've ever seen. And certainly people who were at the event as well said the same thing. Some of the, like, the greatest ringside performance they'd ever seen. So I think when you do that against a guy like Spence, who's an excellent fighter and certainly the second best welterweight of the past five or six years, it's, it, it will eventually become impossible to ignore. Like so many clips of the fight went like viral. And I know that people might balk at that, but that is how you grow a sport yeah. or grow sporting stars in this day and age. And I think a lot more people know who Terence Crawford is after Saturday night than they did or than um, people didn't know him previously. So certainly if they if they knew the name and, you know, it's, it's around a long time I, th that he's in that category now. That's almost the surprise, perhaps. 
Yeah. You mentioned the Jake Paul thing as well. And actually, you know, I, I was chatting to Pete Carroll, a brilliant MMA journalist from yeah. uh, Dublin yesterday about that Jake Paul Nate Diaz fight that's coming up. And uh, it actually felt as though it, it was the first time, or it has been the first time, where there's very little boxing attention on this Jake Paul fight. And I think it's because of the magnitude of that Crawford Spence fight. And there was a brilliant fight as well last week between Noya Inoue and Stephen Fulton. For about five days, Inoue, a brilliant Japanese fighter. The, the monster they call him was pound for pound number one and then Crawford stole his thunder but it was a really good week and actually a good year for professional boxing and I think the Jake Paul thing almost exists separately now a lot of the curiosity from boxing circles towards him has subsided since he lost that fight to Tommy Fury um, and now it, it feels like its own thing and if you're into it more luck to you you know um, it's, it's ultimately just a form of escapism isn't it sure Gap brilliant stuff thank you so much Thanks, Joe. Cheers. Gavin Casey there of The 42 with us. OTB GAA. And all of a sudden, you know, Kerry are totally up. They never, ever got a chance to build again after they got a score. And that was down to Cluxon and the movement outside. Subscribe to the OTB GAA podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts.